Lord, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come and study your word. And we ask you to guide and lead as we look at what you would want us to learn. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hebrews chapter 2, we're continuing on who Jesus is in, the, in this. And then we're going to look at who we are just a little bit. So starting at verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, may, that he by the grace of God, could, should taste death for every man. For it, became, for it became him for whom all things and by whom all things, in bringing many sons into glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. For both he that sanctifieth and he and they that are sanctified are all one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church I will sing praise unto you. So we're going to look at this because this is very interesting. We had already been talking about how Jesus uh, came. He was put into subjection. Everything's under his feet. And he was made a lower, as it says in verse 9. It says, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than angels. Well, he's still Lord, but he was made human. And humans are lower than angels during the time we walk on this world. When we die and we get our glorified bodies, we're raised above the angels. So Jesus, who is Lord, is Master came in the flesh and was put to be lower than the angels for a short point, just like we are lower than the angels until the day that we get our glorified body and are put into our proper position. Well, because he became human. Yeah, I wasn't thinking of the, the human position is why we're in the flesh, we are lower than the angels, they are the stewards, they are the, the uh, tutors. Uh, and then when we get our glorified body, we take our spot above the angels. And remember I talked about this is what slaves were, even in America, you know, the, the children were raised by slaves when they were children. It happened in Greece, it happened in Rome, it happened in, in all these places you had to have slaves that took care of your kids. And during the time that your kids were being taken care of the slaves, even though technically the kids were the, the masters, they could not tell the slaves what to do because they were still children. The, the, the slaves were there teaching them, instructing them how to behave, how to, how to act in certain situations and responsible for the children. And then when they became adults, you know, whatever age adult was in that particular group, you know, nation, at that point, the entire relationship switched. And now they're master. And they're above the slave that was taking care of them. So this is what this is referring to. Jesus became human. And now the angels are responsible to take care of him just as they're responsible to take care of us. And so this is what it's saying. He became a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, 
crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. And this is kind of a very interesting point. God became man so that he could die and pay man's sin. And, you know, this is so hard to, hard to fathom. Number one, that God made us knowing that we were going to sin because the sin of Adam and Eve did not surprise God. And then, yeah, then he had to come and be like us, subject to temptation, subject to all that comes our way, so that he could die for our sins as the perfect sacrifice and redeem us. You know, this is just, when you really think it all the way through, it's like, God, why would you have done any of this? He was man, he was perfect, he had no sin nature, he died without sin. He was tempted, you know, uh, it, and it tells us he was tempted in all points like unto us. You know, Jesus had to go through pure puberty with all the hormones that raged during that time and the drawing, you know, the drawing of attention toward lust and sex and all that stuff. He had to go through all of that. Yeah, he was not exempt from all the human natural things that come our way. You know, and he still was perfect. And all of this was so that he could taste death for us. And the world will say, well, how can one person pay the debt of the world? Because he wasn't just a person, he was God. You know, and being God, he could pay the debt of the world because he was the perfect sacrifice. And this is what came down to it. And it says that all of this is so that he, by the grace of God, should taste death. And this is hard to even imagine. God died. You know, for three days, God died. Now, good thing there's the Trinity, so not, God did not completely die. But one third of God died <laughs> for three days for our sanctification. And all of this is so hard to really understand sometimes. Because verse 10 says, For it became him, or was simile, or fit, it was fit for him whom, whom are all things, and by whom all things, you know, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of salvation perfect through suffering. It became him whom all things, and by whom all things. He is the creator. The creator of the universe died for us. And you know, again, that just it really does blow my mind that God created us and then came turned around and paid our debt. Yeah. Uh, and like I say, it wasn't that it surprised him and he said, Oh man, what are we gonna do now? You know, uh, I really did not know Adam and Eve were going to sin. Now, now we've got to figure out what we're going to do to fix the problem. He was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. Before anything was laid in this world, before God planted the trees and put the planets in place, he had this discussion saying, we're going to create man, man's going to sin, what are we going to do? Every, you know, and the creator of the world died. And we look at this and it says, in bringing many sons into glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Yeah. And this is kind of an interesting statement. Jesus 
was made complete through the suffering for man. And that's what perfect here means, complete. He's already complete. But, you know, we think about this. He had never suffered. He had never died. And now he understands what death and suffering is. And this makes him somebody that we can go to because he knows what the suffering is. He knows what it means to be tempted and not fall. He knows what it means to die and all of that. He's, he doesn't just understand it intellectually, he has done it. He has been made complete, made perfect in that he has experienced what we go through. And I understand this because, you know, if you have not gone through something, people look at you and say, well, you just don't know what I'm going through. Well, Jesus came to this world and was tempted in all areas like we are and yet did not sin. He was beat in, on the, with a scourging. They put a mask over his head and beat him. You know, he was uh, condemned without sin and, sent, and imprisoned. That is a great debate the theologians have. There are theologians that say because he was God, it was impossible for him to sin. And then there are those that say, well, if he could not have sinned, he wasn't really tempted. Okay. Uh, I tend to be on the side that, that if, he, if he could not sin, then there's no real temptation. Right. It, it's a great debate. There's great arguments on both sides. I fall on the side where I believe that he could have sinned, but because he's God, he would not have sinned. Uh, so, but there are those that say, well, because he was God, there is no way he could have sinned. And then at that point, I'm saying, well, did he really get tempted if he could not have sinned? Uh, and so this is a question there is no answer for in the scriptures that really doesn't tell us that much. It tells us that he was tempted. I guess he possibly could sin because it says that he was fully human, right? He was fully human and fully... But he's the anthropos. He is the fully human and fully God. And so there's, there's debate, and people have argued this uh, point for 2,000 years, and there is no answer to, the, answer to it. Well, it's an argument that people use all the time. You know, the, the really super intellectual will go, well, you know, could he, he's God, could he have sinned? And there's no real answer to that, so. That's part of, that's part of the arguments that people make. We don't use it fully and completely. Well, he didn't have a sin nature to start with because he did not have a human father. And the sin nature is passed through the male. All right. Adam sinned. Adam sinned on purpose. Eve was deceived. And Adam came and he did it on purpose. Uh, for whatever reason, you know, I don't want to be separated from my wife or, you know, I don't, you know, we don't know why he made it because we're not told, but he voluntarily sinned 
knowing better. And so the sin nature comes through the man. For by one man, death entered into, into us. And so Jesus comes by one man, life is given to us. So we have this whole process. And so Jesus was born of the virgin and did not get the sin nature. Question, comment, Gary? Because he was also fully God. This is what I'm saying. In God's mathematics, it's 100% man, 100% God, equaling one person. You know, we in our thinking, well, he's, he's God and man, so he's 50% God, 50% man. And, God, and in the scriptures, it's very clear that he was 100%. He was fully man and fully God at the same time. And only God could have done that. And so it's very hard. It's very complex. Because we would go the way that the Greeks go. It's a demigod. He's not, he's not really God. He's half God and half man. And the Greeks did this and all the Roman, you know, every, every nation did this. They had half gods. And it's very hard for us to understand. But this is why Jesus is a unique individual. Yeah, and this is what I'm saying. In Hebrew and Greek, they call him the anthropos, uh, anthropos the God-man, or, or man-God. <laughs> and he was 100% each. He was a completely God and completely man, which in our mindset says that does not compute. Okay? But there's a lot of things in the Bible that don't fully compute. You know, when we look at the Trinity, we can't fully understand the Trinity. But you know, when I look at these things... They don't cause great problems to me because I look at it and say, if God is God, there should be things about him that I cannot understand. Because if I can understand everything there is to know about God, he is too small. He is not big enough to be God. If I can understand everything there is to know about him, who have I made God? I've made myself God. I know everything there is to know about God then my God's not big enough. So when I start reading about the Trinity and I start reading about a, a man named Jesus who is fully human and fully God, and my mind goes, okay, mathematically, he's half God and half man, but God says he's completely God and completely man. <laughs> you know, and I go back and I'm going, how can that be? Because he's God. And we've got to understand he is God and so he can do things that we cannot fathom and we cannot understand. And then we come down to, could he have fallen? Could he have sinned? And believe me, that is a debate that has gone on for years, and there's not enough scripture to back it up either way. We're, we're told that he was tempted. We're told that he's God. Can God sin? No, he doesn't change. God never is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. So God comes into man unchangeable, which means that he can't sin, and yet he's man, and man can sin. So how do you answer that question? I don't know the answer. And we can't understand this one completely. And like I say, I'm on the side that are you tempted if you can't sin? You know, and so it's like I've said, I could go sit in a bar, you know, 
for a week and not be tempted to drink because I have no desire toward alcohol. So am I being tempted by sitting in the bar being asked, do you want to drink? To me, I don't feel like I would be tempted. All right? Uh, because I have no desire. Yet I'm being tempted because I'm being asked, do you want this? So we don't know the answer to that. Yeah. And so he, it says that he was made perfect, and literally, I want to go to the word, this means complete. Not perfect, because we think of, if you made perfect, something had to be wrong in the first place. And so, but he was perfect in all ways, but it says he was complete. He now understands what it means to suffer. He's actually suffered for us. And, you know, when we think about the crucifixion, you know, I remember the big flack when, when uh, Mel Gibson put out the uh, Passion. And everybody's going to go, well, this movie's so terrible, it's so bad. And it was pretty graphic, I understand. But I'd seen many R-rated battle movies and slasher movies that were worse than The Passion. So when I went there, I was really expecting to see what Jesus went through. And, the, and they had washed it down so much that even as bad as that movie was, it was nothing compared to what he went through. You know, and we need to really understand what did Jesus go through when he went to the cross? The scourging alone would have left him in as a bloody, pulped mess with no skin left on his back and his muscles showing and the fat being torn off and that's how bad the scourging was. They put a bag over his head and started beating him and says, well if you're a prophet tell us who's hitting you. And they beat his face into a bloody pulp. Isaiah tells us that they plucked, you know, pulled his beard out by handfuls. And if you're, if you're a man and know what, it, you know, and have ever had a beard that got even tugged on, you know how painful that is, and, and they're pulling it out of his face. And this is before he even goes to the cross. He has been made into a huge pulverized mess. Then he is told to carry his cross, which would have been just the, the main beam, but still talking about a 150-pound beam to the cross. And he's been beat and barely alive and now he's being sent to walk to the cross. If he had been truly human, he'd have been dead before he even have got there. And if you know, death comes because of sin. I truly believe that Jesus could not have died until the moment that he became sin on the cross because he had no sin to be dying for. Now, I could be wrong, but it just... Death comes from sin. The wages of sin is death. Jesus had no sin. I don't believe that he could die. Then they put him on a cross. And any, the only way to be able to breathe when you were on the cross is you had to push up on your feet, which the nail was put into a nerve bundle in your feet, so just pushing on it, caused pain to shoot through his whole body. 
He's pushing his back that has been bloodied to a pulp up this cross with all the splinters in it so that he can get a breath and the pain makes him drop back down. And his, in his wrist, he had nails put through the nerve bundles there. So when he comes crashing back down, the splinters are being driven in his back the other direction. And he comes down and hits a nerve bundle in his hand that sends nerve attack down his whole body, which causes a spasm to cause more splinters. <laughs> this was not a nice way to die. When they were on the cross, it usually took them three or four days to die. And what they technically died of a suffocation. They died of drowning in, their, in the fluids from their own body. That is how bad things were for crucifixion. And even as I've drawn it out, I have not made it as bad as it really is, but I can see the winching of people when you think, what did he go through? He went through so much for us so that we could be saved. Uh, you know, and then in verse 11 it says, for both he that sanctifies and they that are sanctified are all one. I love this. He sanctifies us, and we're sanctified, and he says, we are one with Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we're God, but he says, we are one. We, he looks at us totally different than we look at ourselves. This is why he calls us saints. This is why he calls us his bride. This is why he calls us his children. He says, you are one because of what I have done. And I have sanctified you. And because you are sanctified, now we are joined together as one. This is quite a powerful thing when we really understand what happens at salvation. Now, and this is something we've got to be able to start grabbing hold of. When we get saved, everything changes. Our relationship with God changes. He makes us a new creation. He puts a heart of flesh in us that is not desiring to serve, serve after the flesh uh, after, and after the sin. And he says, I have made you. And it says, for this cause, he is not ashamed to call them or to declare by name that you're my brethren. These are, this is my family. This is my people. What a beautiful picture we have of him declaring us as his children. And verse 12 says, saying, I will declare your name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church, I will sing praises unto you. I love this. Jesus sings praises about us. Okay, have you ever really thought about that? Jesus declares our name, and it says that he sings praises in the church about us, in the congregation about us. Yeah, and it's hard sometimes to think of Jesus praising us, especially when we know, you know, when we think we know who we are and we don't really truly know who we are because we don't see ourselves the way he sees us. And, you know, we see in Job, we see when God says, have you considered my servant Job? He is a perfect man who hates evil. That was God's testimony of Job. 
And Satan goes, of course I have considered him. But you're protecting him so much that I can't do a thing to him. And God gives him permission. And, you know, God's perception of us is so different what our, of our perception for ourselves. God has declared us perfect in heaven when we come to him. He has justified us. Satan comes to accuse us and, and God says, well, that's my perfect child. What, what are you accusing my perfect child of? Oh, you want to try to go get them to be not perfect. All right, you can do. Yeah, scary. You know, that God allows this sometimes. But he puts the limits on Satan. And this is the good news. Satan always has limits. He is the chained lion. He can only go so far. He, and he will always have a limit of how far he can take people. Even during the tribulation period, he has a limit on how far he can deal with humanity. Because if he didn't, he'd kill off all of humanity before they had a chance to turn to God. So God gives him a lot of leeway in the tribulation, but he cannot kill off all the people. And we've got to understand God is always in charge. God is sovereign. Which is hard for us when we look around and say, wow, God, look at all what appears bad and you're allowing all of this stuff to happen? And God says, yep, and I've got a reason for it. And I'm not explaining it to you. I'm just, I have a reason for it. Know that I am in charge and that everything I do is for good. And that's hard sometimes for us to understand. When we look at our life and see all that goes on, and it's like, all right, God, I do not understand how this can be for good. You know, I get martyred. How can that be for good? Well, because people see that faithfulness and that martyrdom and they turn to Christ. And, they, and we don't see it, but God says, this person's in heaven because of what you went through. This person, you went through all that suffering and this person came to God because of what you did. This person became stronger in their faith because of what you went through. And it's like, God, uh, did I really have to go through all of that to make them stronger? And he goes, yes, otherwise I wouldn't have had to have done it. And so we need to understand that God has a sovereign plan for everything that it does. In the 1700s, they called it his providence. When you went through something bad, it was what God wanted you to do. But they also understood what it was to be under a king and a ruler. And they understand that God is the king. And the king can do what the king wants to do. Now, this is the hard thing for us as Americans because we have never been under a king. We don't like our rulers. We vote them out of office. Now, but that is not the way people before have ever thought about their leaders. We have a leader that can do what he wants because he's the leader. And I've got to obey my leader who can do what he wants. And we don't have that mentality as Americans, which is, makes it hard for us to understand master, the terms master, lord, king, sovereign. Because we have this very big independent streak in America, which is why we're hated in most of the world, because we don't know what it means to subject ourselves to authority. 
we don't know what it means to honor other people's ways of doing things. There are many Americans that go around saying, well, I'm an American, you need to be doing things the right way. You know, as they're in other countries that don't do it our way. You know, and we're, you know, the idea of an ugly American is really true out there. You know, that we think we're so much greater than everybody else and everybody should be doing it our way. And, you know, we need to be careful with that. And here's the same attitude on it. You know, are we going to do things God's way or are we going to do it our way? And so we need to be able to understand all of this. Uh, you know, he's sanctified. He's not ashamed to call us brethren and his children. Saying, and then he declares us, and it says, I will sing praise unto, unto you. Yeah, I think this is so interesting that God sings praises unto us. You know, he is speaking good things. When he comes to edification, he knows how to edify. How many of us need to really learn how to edify others? You know, are there people you know who are Christians that you just feel good being around them because they just make you feel good when they get done? You know, there are a lot of Christians that tear people down. They're real good at tearing people down. And, you know, that's, and then I wonder if they're really a Christian or not, but that's another story. But there are some Christians that are just really good. You feel good in their presence. They're building up. They're edifying. Jesus is the best edifier out there. When you're in his presence, you get huge amounts of edification, huge amounts of being praised. And it says... Verse 13, and, I, and, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me, for as much then as the children are partakers of the flesh and blood, he himself, he also himself likewise took part in the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and delivered them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So here he says again, I will put my trust in him. Now this is switching over to Jesus. This is a quote from Psalm 18 verse 2. A Messianic Psalm that talks about Jesus. It says, I will put my trust in him. God does not put his trust in us. Right? We are not worthy of trust. But he does put his trust in Jesus. And it says, and behold, I and, his, and the children which God has given me, so we are his children given to God, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part in the same. So Jesus became flesh, and he be, had blood. He became human with every bit of that humanity in there. So again, could he have sinned? We don't know. We don't understand, but he did become fully human. And humans can sin. Adam and Eve, when they were created, had no sin nature and still sinned. You know, we, unfortunately, have sin nature, so we are bent towards sin to begin with. You know, we will sin because we have a sin nature, and we will end up looking at sin. Jesus had no sin nature, so he had no desire to sin. He had no uh, uh, bend toward it. So he literally would have had to have chosen to sin 
So that takes him to God, who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So this is the biggest argument that he could not have sinned because he was 100% God. Okay? And because he did not have a sin nature to want to sin, he would have had to have chosen to sin. And because he was God, he would never have chosen to sin. Yeah. And so this is why I can give you both arguments. It's hard to understand. And then there's the whole argument that if, if, if he could not have sinned, was he truly tempted? Yeah, and there, you know, and I don't know the answer to that, to be honest with you. I know which way I lean, but here it says he was made like them. He was made flesh and blood, and he likewise took part in all of that. And I love this, that through death, he might destroy him that had power of death. That is the devil. Where his death was the victory over Satan. Up until this point, Satan had, Satan was the number one angel when he was Lucifer in, the, in, the, in, in heaven. He was the number one angel. Man was created, and I believe he got jealous because he understood that man who was made lower than the angels was going to be promoted above the angels at some point. And he's the number one angel, and he's going which means that he is next in line to God, and all of a sudden, there's this inferior creation down there that's going to be higher than him. And pride took, took over in his heart, and he said, I will be like the Most High. Now be very careful. He never in those scriptures said, I'm going to be greater than God. He, uh, he said, I will be like the Most High. I will sit on the, the mountain of the north. I will sit on a throne next to God. You know, so he was saying, I'm going to be equal to God, which is saying a lot for a created being. But how many human beings say the same thing? You know, I am, I am going to be greater than God. Some of us even go, I'm going to be greater than God because my standards are higher than God's. You know, now, they're not really saying I'm, I'm greater than God, but you know, when you're saying your standards are higher than God's, what are you really saying? Hey, I'm, I'm, I'm bigger than God. I, you know, God allows these things. I would never allow these things. Uh-huh. So you're telling me you know things better than God? You're, you are omniscient. You know all things. You know the future, so you know exactly what's going on, and your decisions are better than God's. We need to be very careful about this and understand that God has a reason for what he does and his reasons are based on his omniscience and his understanding of the future. He knows what's going to happen. He knows what he's preparing us for by putting us through trials and tribulations to get us ready for something in the future because he knows the future. He is outside of time so when God is omnipresent, he is everywhere present. That's everywhere in the world, everywhere in the universe, everywhere in the multiple universes, if there's more than one universe, as the uh, physics is telling us. He is over everything. But because he's outside of time, he also fills all of time. And this is hard for us because we are bound by time. I, we can only go from t this moment forward. He's outside of time and he fills time. 
God is with Abraham, Adam and Eve right now. He is at creation right now. He is already in the millennial kingdom right now while he's dealing with us right now. Because he fills all of time because he's outside of time. He sees time like this piece of paper and says, well, there's the beginning, there's the end, and I'm, and I'm looking at the whole thing at one moment. And, you know, that is hard for us to get a hold of. And this is why when God gives a prophecy, he's not saying, well, this is what's going to happen. From his perspective, this is what has already happened. Now, this is hard for us to understand. He's going, Jesus will be born in Bethlehem because even from his perspective, when he gave Micah that prediction, he had already been born in Bethlehem. Even though it was hundreds of years before he was actually going to be born, God said, well, I already know that he's born in Bethlehem, so here, here's the prophecy. He's going to be born in Bethlehem. You know, and how do we comprehend that? We people who are stuck in time that can only go forward in time have a hard time understanding a God who is outside of time and goes back and forth in time and knows the beginning from the end, knows the beginning from the end. He already knows what's going to happen because he's already seen it. When God gives a prophecy, he's not guessing. He's not predicting. He's telling us what is happened already as far as he's concerned because he's already there. That's hard for us to understand. But that tells us how big God is. And this is one they tell us, you know, how big is your God? How omnipresent is your God? How omniscient is your God? No matter how big you think he is, no matter how all-knowing, you still are only scratching the surface of how, how big and how all-knowing he is and, and all of this because he is so much more. He is infinitely bigger than we are. He is infinitely wiser than we are. He is infinitely more powerful than we are. He is infinitely more sovereign than we can ever, ever think. Proverbs tells us that he holds the heart of the king in his hands and turns it wherever he wants it to go. Now, sometimes we go, God, what did you allow that to happen for? You know, why did you let a Nero come in and almost destroy Christianity through his persecution? And God says, look at all the people who got saved by the persecution. And it's like, wow, did it really take that? And it, and it would have taken it. If that's what it, you know, to, to really help people, then that's what it took. And we look at it and say, God, I just don't understand this. And his death defeated Satan. What was Satan's great weapon against humanity? Death. You're going to die one day and then you get to go to hell for eternity. And remember, Satan is not setting up a kingdom in hell. Hell is a prison. He is a prisoner of the lake of fire. He is not the God of the lake of fire. He is a prisoner. And in, in Revelation, it tells us when we see him, the people are going to say, this is the one that, that made the nations tremble. You know, and that makes us wonder, what does Satan really look like? You know, he's some kind of wimpy you know, creation. 
You know, and when we think about this for us, it's like the Wizard of Oz. Don't look at behind that. Don't look at the man behind the curtain. Satan is the man behind the curtain making things look like he's more powerful, making him look like he is all-knowing. And when, we really, and when, they, when he stood before God at the white throne judgment, the world is going to look at him and say, that's what we were afraid of? This is the one that made the nations tremble? So when we think about that, we start to really realize when he gets into the lake of fire, nobody's going to be bothered by him. He is not the God and the king of, of, of the lake of fire. He is a prisoner of the lake of fire. He is not setting up a kingdom opposite of God. He is not God's opposite. You know, and we've got to get that through our head. He is a created being. He is not God's opposite. He is not all-knowing. You know, he is not you know, uh, omnipresent. He is, you know, he is created. Now, I believe he has a lot of speed and everything because of, his, of his, the fact that he's in the spiritual realm. I believe that he's been around long enough that he knows you know, a lot of stuff. But he doesn't know everything. He does not know the future. So he is limited because he is a created being. And Jesus came and he conquered Satan on the cross. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were created to have dominion in this world. They gave that dominion to Satan when they, when they sinned. And Satan held that dominion until the cross when Jesus defeated him on the cross and took the title deed back of this world. And for 2,000 years, Satan is getting to operate as if he has dominion, but he does not have dominion. He's defeated. Um, and we, you know, we sometimes have to remember he is a defeated enemy. Death has no hold on us as Christians. Death to us is the greatest thing that can happen because we get to go to heaven. Now, death to the lost person is still a terrifying thing because they're going to go to hell. And, you know, I truly believe that at the moment of death, just before we get out of it, die, uh, pass, we see where we're headed. And many morticians will tell you there are people that die very peacefully. But there's a lot of people, they say, that come and just are terrified by what they see. And I think they're getting a glimpse of hell at that moment, before the spirit has left, they're getting a glimpse of where they're going. There's that slight moment in time when you're in the physical and the spiritual at the same moment. And for us as Christians, it's like, ah, there's Jesus. There's God. I'm, I'm, I'm ready for him. But imagine if you're going to be going into hell. And remember, hell is the, the temporary place until we go stand before before the Father on the white throne judgment, and then we're sentenced to the lake of fire. Hell is kind of like, in, in American terms, it's jail until I go to my court date and get sent to prison. All right? So hell is temporary because when people are now sent to the lake of fire, death and hell are also placed in to the lake of fire. They're temporary. And when we get to the lake of fire after the white throne judgment, even those are cast into the lake of fire. 
forever. And you know, this is the one thing that people look at. They're going, well, God is so mean and evil. How can he send somebody to hell forever? Well, the first thing you want to remember is God doesn't send anybody anywhere. He gives them what they asked for in this lifetime. If they wanted to spend eternity with him, they had every opportunity to spend eternity with him. And if they didn't want to spend eternity with him, God's not going to make them go to heaven. You didn't want to have anything to do with me for your years on earth. You really don't want to have anything to do with, with God in heaven. And being sent to heaven when you don't want to have anything to do with God would be almost hell, would turn heaven into hell anyway. You know, now, it's definitely is not as bad, but you'd be miserable. You know, and to me, it's kind of interesting. So many people will complain, well, I don't really want to go to heaven. I don't want to worship all the time. I love worshiping. I love studying the word of God. I, I can picture spending millions of years just praising the one who died for me and actually seeing him and saying, oh, this is so wonderful. What have you done? You know, and I, and I listened to a pastor talk about, you know, he pictures people going around and getting testimonies. The testimonies of how people got to heaven. And I love that picture because what is one of the greatest things to hear is the testimony of somebody, how did they get saved? I love listening to people and saying, how did you get saved? What was it that brought you to, the, to Jesus? Some people have just simple simple stories like I did. I got saved when I was 10 years old. And I have a fairly simple story. Some people have some very interesting stories. You know, uh, how they committed these crimes and ended up in prison and then got saved and then God got them out of prison long before they were supposed to and they were able to do great things for God. You know, they, they fell into sin, you know, the, the sin of alcoholism and lost everything, but finally when they hit bottom got saved. You know, and it's like, you know, when I was younger, I'm going, God, I have no testimony to tell people of. You know, you know I just got saved when I was young and I've had a pretty easy life. You know, I didn't go into alcoholism. I didn't go into drugs. I didn't, you know, but I had one guy that was very, very interesting to me. He goes, you think our stories are so great. He goes, every one of us that have the stories that you think are so great would trade our, trade our story for the life that you lived. And I needed to hear that because it was like, you know, what kind of testimony do I have? And then going, we would, we would trade it in a heartbeat because of, Yes, God has redeemed it, but there was so much horror in what we had to go through that we would have be happy to, to have had the testimony where I got saved at an early age and just followed God. And you're going, well, you know, I guess that's true. You know, so we don't want to belittle what we've gone through. We don't want to raise up <laughs> what we've gone through. You know, we, my son likes to listen to the show Unshackled, which is talking about how people fall and get into the bottom of it and then they get saved. The only problem I have with the Unshackled show is in their 30-minute uh, presentation, 25-minute presentation, almost 20 of it is how bad life was. Okay, and then they get saved and they spend five minutes on what they, you know, how God has changed their life. I really wish it was the other way around. You know, 
But I also understand they get a lot of people and they draw people into the story and people really get to say, well, this is what my life is like and this person knows what it's like. But you know, I in our church would like to see people be more willing to give their testimony. How did somebody get saved? Because it encourages others to say, I need, I, you know, here's my testimony. And I've given my testimony several times, how I got saved and 10 years old and you know, how I got there and a lot of other parts of it. But you know, we need to be willing to say, this is what God has done for me. And it doesn't have to be a 30 minute testimony, it can just be five minutes, 10 minutes. This was my life before God. This is how God brought me to know that I needed a savior. And this is how I became a Christian and this is what he's done since that period of time. We have a defeated enemy. He's defeated. He has no power over us. And yet we give him power so often. Now we also have a problem with our own life. We are tempted by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. We would sin even without Satan being involved. The lust of the flesh. I have a sin nature that wants to sin, that desires to sin. And if I don't live in the meditation of God and who he is, I will sin. The lust of the eyes, all the things I see that I want. And I'm not talking about sexual problems, I'm just talking about I see something. I get a friend who gets a brand new car. Now I was perfectly happy with my car until my friend got a new car. And then I get jealous, I get envious. Why did they get a car? Why didn't I get a car? Why do they, why do they get this nice new car and I'm stuck with this car that, that's five years old, three years old, whatever it might be. My car doesn't park itself. My car doesn't drive by itself. My car doesn't tell me that there's a car in my blind spot. You know, He's got all these things and I'm jealous. Lust of the eyes. And then the pride of life. That is a big problem for us, that I want to do what I think is best for me. And note that I said what I think is best for me because usually I have no clue what's best for me. I do what I think is best for me and find out that, man, I just messed up my entire life because I did what I thought was good. And so we have trouble to begin with. But Satan then comes along and, and helps us. <laughs> He goes, oh, uh, you have a little bit of lustful eye problem. Let me put some things in front of your eyes to make it even better for you. You know, you have a little bit of pride of, pride of your own. Let me put a little bit of, of issue in front of you. And he doesn't have to do anything and will sin, but he also tries to help us sin. And he's really good at it. He'll come along and say, you know, you can, you can do that. God will forgive you. You know, if you do this sin, God will forgive you. Roman, uh, 1 John 1, 9, if you confess your sins, God is faithful and just who will forgive you of all unrighteousness. And, and Satan uses that against us and say, God's for, God will forgive you. And then you sin and go, wow, what a terrible Christian you are. Now, if you were really a Christian, you would never have done this kind of stuff. Now everybody knows what a bad Christian you are. You shouldn't even show your face anywhere near the church because of how bad you are. 
and don't ever go back to church because you are a terrible and awful person and how many people don't go back to church? Because Satan said you'll be forgiven and then he attacks you for being such a bad Christian. Yeah, we need to be so careful because he is a liar. Yes, God will forgive us, but that doesn't mean there's not a consequence for our sin. And then when we get there, God will still forgive us and don't forget that he will forgive you when you, when you sin. The, but the enemy is defeated. Verse 15 says, And deliver them who through fear of death were in lifetime subject to bondage. How much fear do we have of death? You know, Hopefully it's none as Christians. But you know, we still, to a degree, will have some fear of death. You know, most people say, I'm not afraid to die, I just don't want to do it. Okay, well, that's a fear of death. Or, I'm just afraid of how it will happen. You know, uh, I want to die, but to see my animals. <laughs> <laughs> but I understand some of that. You know, I don't really when I get to my death, I don't want to lose my faculties. You know, I want to be able to teach until the day I die. What happens, though, if I go blind? Or I go a little insane somehow? You know, uh, that kind of scares me in one idea. Because it's like, God, there's certain things I really don't want to see happen. And so we need to be able to understand that God has a plan. Fear of death, subject to, subject to bondage. Uh, I'm going to die, so I'm afraid of it. So there are people that won't do anything because they're so afraid of death. And most of them are the lost world. Uh, I'm afraid to do anything. Now we've got people that are trying to push the boundaries of death. But you know, what are they trying to push? They're trying to get to that fear. and They don't want to cross the line but they want to push right up against the line for that excitement. But they don't really want to cross the line because they don't know what's on the other side and they fear it, but they're challenging it. And then there are people that just won't do anything because they're so afraid of death. And I've met several of them that they are so afraid they won't do anything because they are completely under the bondage of death and in, in, in our flesh, we know that when we die, we have questions about what will happen. You know, will I go to heaven? You know, or will I go to hell? And this is why we as Christians realize my wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life, and I've accepted that gift. Then as long as I understand that I've accepted that gift and I put my trust in Jesus, I will be saved. Now, the question is, what is trust? And trust is putting all of my uh, belief in Jesus and having no plan B, you know, which is tough for me sometimes as a manager because I've always got a plan B and C and D in place. But when it comes to Jesus and salvation, there is no plan A, uh, plan B or C. If he is not who he says he is, I'm in trouble because he's the only one I have. And I, I talk about this in repelling. 
If anybody's ever repelled, there's that moment when you put your entire weight and support on that little skinny rope. Now you can say all day, I trust this rope to hold me up. But the real moment comes when you go over the cliff, you go over the wall, whatever it is that you're learning, and put your whole weight and support on that rope. And then you're going, now it's no longer faith and trust. This rope is actually holding me. And that's where we need to be with Jesus. All my trust is in him. And I go over the cliff and saying, I am fully trusting you. If you are not strong enough to keep me up and you're not going to hold me up, here's my, here's my moment of I'm trusting you and if you're not there, I'm in trouble. If we don't have that relationship with him, we don't fully trust him. And this is where it's very important. Jesus said many in that day will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I? And they list off a whole bunch of good religious works. I fed the poor, I gave clothing to them, I visited the sick, I visited the, the prisoners. And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You did all these great works, but I did not, you and I did not have a relationship. You did not put your trust in me, you put your trust in what you were doing. And this is very important for us to understand. Our trust, absolute full trust, has to be in Jesus. And in our world, we have people putting religions all together. Well, I like this idea about Jesus, but I like this little statement by Buddha and, and, and this statement by Krishna and this statement by uh, Allah, and they make up their own religion. And what have they really done? They have made themselves God. I don't like, any, I don't like what goes on in these religions. I'm going to take the best of all the religions and... Who's the one that makes, makes the determination of what's best? Me. Whatever I think is good, I'll put together and I'm God. And when they stand before God, he's going to say, goodbye. Now, I have a lot more respect for somebody who is a Muslim or a Buddhist or, you know, or a Hindu who really pours their life into the wrong thing than I do with these people who combine everything together and try to say, now, they're wrong, and I understand that, but I have a lot more respect for them because they're at least doing what we're doing. They're putting their whole trust in something. They're putting their trust in the wrong something because it still works. Every religion is based on good works. When you really take and look at every religion out there, they're all boiled down to one thing. And when people say all religions are the same, in, in many ways they are even though they're different, they, they all boil down to do more good than bad to please the deity. And this is why we as Christians will oftentimes say, I do not have a religion, I have a relationship with God. I am in a relationship with him, I am not in following rules. And this is very important. Now, as a Christian, will I obey God's laws? Yes, the Holy Spirit comes in to live in me, he changes who I am, and eventually I find myself obeying his laws but not because I am feeling a compulsion to be must follow these laws, but, but the Holy Spirit is changing me into his likeness, and his likeness then compels me to follow the laws because the laws are who God is. 
And so the more I become like God, the more I follow his laws because his laws are all based in who he is. When we did the Truth Project, Dale Tackett said something very interesting. He goes, how did God figure out the laws that he was going to give us? And he goes, was he standing up there in heaven and saying, well, let's see, should people be allowed to murder or die? And he flipping a coin. No, that is not how he decided, you know, whether, whether, you know, murder was good or bad. He goes, I created everybody. Killing my creation is bad. And it wasn't him just arbitrarily making decisions. And so all of these things, God is truth. So then for lying is bad. So the more I become like God, the more truthful I'm going to get, the more loving I'm going to get, the more content I'm going to get with what God has given me and the less I will be coveting other stuff and the more I will be lifting God high and placing him in first. And we go down the Ten Commandments and saying, all of these Ten Commandments will be followed if I'm truly becoming like God. I will have my worship with God. Honor the Sabbath. You know, and you know, you have your seven-day Adventists talking about how Saturday is the Sabbath, and they, and they are right. But you know what? I want to worship God every day of the week. Not just one day a week. And so I'm going to worship God every day because of how special our relationship is. I want to be with him every day of the week. I want to go back to the Garden of, Ad, of Eve, Ad, uh, Eden when they met with God every day and spent their time with him. And this is the beauty of it. The more I become like him, the more I will be obedient to the laws, not because I'm striving to and having to keep the laws, but because I am becoming like him and being changed from the inside out. Not me from the outside in, you know, well, if I just do enough good things, I will become good. No, he makes me good inside, and then that comes out. And this is where true Christianity and relationship with God is revealed. And this is why I tell people, are you changed? Are you different today than you were, and I like to say go back a year or two, because most of the time, you know, it should be that we're getting better every day, but it's hard to say that I'm getting better because it could just be a short-term <laughs> fix. But am I better today than I was five years ago? Am I generally better today than I was 10 years ago? Is my life truly being changed? You know, or is it just me beating my flesh into submission and I'm going to fall? And there's a big difference between those two. And usually we know the difference. There are things that, I get, that God has said give up and they're no longer a temptation for me anymore. There are certain things that I'm going, I need to make sure this happens. And you know what? I fight and I struggle and I do all these problems with it. And then there's other things that God just says, it's gone. You're changed from the inside out. You know, I have talked to so many people and they're going, well, I'm trying to be a good Christian. I'm struggling to be a good Christian. My answer is always the same. Quit struggling and keep and quit trying be crucified. Let God change you. Get into his word and understand what he says about things. Become like him and be changed. And this is the important thing, to be changed from the inside.
um, verse 16 says, For verily he took on him the took not on him the nature of angels, but took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in all in things pertaining to God, and to make reconciliation for the sins of people. For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted. So here we have a beautiful picture. He says, he did not become an angel. Yeah, that might have been something that God could have done. He could, he could have become an angel and ministered. But he did not become an angel. He became a human. Not just any human, he became part of the seed of Abraham. The promise to Abraham was that all nations would be blessed through his seed. The Messiah had to come through Abraham's seed so that he could bless all nations. So very specifically, of all the people that ever lived in this world, Jesus had to be born of the seed of Abraham. More specifically, later on, David was told, you will have a, a son who will sit on the throne forever. So now, of all the Jews that are out there, it had to be from David's line. This is why the first chapters of Matthew and the third chapter of Luke are so important because it gives the genealogy of the human Jesus all the way back to David to show that he is the one that is the ruler forever. And so we see that all of this, and it says that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest knowing what we have gone through, knowing what it is like to live a perfect life. And it says that he makes reconciliation for the sins of the people. And this word reconciliation is to placate. He paid the debt. In other places it says that he was our propitiation for sin. Now we don't use the word propitiation very often in today's lifetime. But propitiation means that he took all the anger of the Father for sin upon himself. That's a lot of anger poured out on Jesus at the cross. On the cross, Jesus became sin. He took the sin of the entire world upon him and took all of the Father's anger to sin upon himself. This is during that three hours of darkness when Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why was he forsaken? For the first time in all of eternity, he was separated from the Father and the Holy Spirit because he became sin and they could not fellowship with him. I believe that that was the hardest part of his death on the cross when he became sin and the father turned his back on him and a perfect union was broken and we as humans can't even begin to understand what happened at that point the closest we can do is for somebody who's been married for many many years and they're and they're really close and they're and they're really like one and one of the two spouses dies 
and the other one just doesn't know what to do them themselves because half of them, half of their life is missing. And that's nothing compared to what happened to Jesus on the cross. The Father and the Holy Spirit suffered on the cross because they had to break fellowship with themselves. A fellowship that had been going on for all eternity. And they were now separated from themselves, torn apart because of sin, so that Jesus could pay our debt. We don't really fathom what, what was going on during that period of time. For a period of three hours, everything that Jesus was going through was in his own power, his own strength. Yes, he's God, but now he has become sin. And God the Father and the Holy Spirit turned their back on him and separated just as they did Adam and Eve and mankind at the beginning. And now he's suffering for three hours to really truly understand what death and suffering is all about. He had no extra strength from the, from the Father and from the Holy Spirit to support him. He had to go through it all alone. And he says... He learned how to make reconciliation. He placated God. And he's now able to say, these people are forgiven. And then real quickly, so for in, in verse 18, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted or aid. And so when we're being tempted, he can go, I know what you're going through. I know what it means to be sin. I know what it means to be that. Beyond that, it also tells us that he is our advocate before the Father. Satan comes along and he says, you know, hey, that guy over there is really bad. And Jesus says, uh, Father, here's my blood. We paid for that. I took that punishment. We can't punish them again because I took that punishment. You know, do you realize that there is only one sin that's going to send people to hell? And that is to reject Jesus Christ, to not accept him. Because the only thing that gets us into heaven is the righteousness of Christ being put on us. When people stand before the white throne judgment, sin is not the issue. They will stand before God clothed in their righteousness, which Isaiah tells us is filthy rags. And I can just picture it. They're going to go, well, yeah, I, got, I got all my good, I got my good clothes on here. And then they're going to look down and realize uh, there's holes, there's, there's stains on all of my good, good clothes. And realize that they do not please God. Realize that all of what they put their trust in all of their good works are not enough. And this is why we have to understand, I can only get to heaven by accepting the sacrifice of, of Jesus into my life and being clothed in his righteous, dying to myself, dying to my goodness, and having his righteousness on me so that I can be forgiven by Christ and being accepted into heaven which is why good works are not going to get somebody into heaven because they are stained, they are filthy rags. And when you understand that word filthy rags, they're literally 
medical waste rags. They're what they used in the, in the surgery to wipe up the blood and the pus and, and everything. And it says that is what they're going to stand before God in. Filthy, filthy, dirty, bloody, good works. And God's going to say, uh, you do not have what it takes to get into heaven. You, you did not accept the righteousness of Christ. What a powerful statement when we think about it. Of what does it take to get to heaven? A gift from God. We're going to close here and I'll answer the question just after that because I want to, you know, I did go long tonight. So, Lord, we just thank you for this. Lord, help us to understand that salvation is a gift. Help us to understand that it is your righteousness that gets us into heaven and help us to understand that we need to share this with others. And we just thank you and all for all that you've done in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to, get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.